Well, as most of you know, uh, every Tuesday and Thursday afternoon right after school, we have here in this building a kids club uh, for kids in the neighborhood. Uh, Some of them are here, Scotty and Lindsay. It's good to see you guys today. And Luke is in Children's Church. I saw Grandma Karen send him there. It was a wise choice, Grandma. (laughs) That's good. Um, We simply teach the kids the Bible. I mean, it, it is it is. Just raw, raw Bible. We teach them um, psalms. They've probably memorized five or six psalms uh, at this point. They've memorized a short catechism. I've been through two children's Bibles. We're going through a third one right now, which it's not a it is a children's Bible, but it's pretty substantive, um, substantive. Uh, It's called the Gospel Storybook Bible, maybe. Uh, I know that for some of the new babies, we have given that out to the family. It's been a great uh, it's been a great book, and we probably read that thing 15 minutes each day, and we're hoping to get through the whole thing. I don't think we will, but it's told the story of the Old Testament kind of through, and now we're in the New Testament. We're talking about Jesus, and these kids hear the gospel often. We have fun. We run around the church building. We play games. We do give them treats, and we're just trying to shower them with love and show them the grace of Christ. Well, a few weeks ago, I was telling the, the children a story about Jesus, and one of the children said, is it real what you're saying? And um, it, it really, it really struck me that perhaps for the first time this child was really grappling with all the things that has been taught. Like, are they just stories or are they, they real? And as I've been teaching them about how God created the heavens and the earth and how he called Abraham and chose to bless him and the fruit of his seed. And I've been teaching about Moses and teaching about David and teaching about the wickedness of people and how they always turn away and how Christ is the solution for all things. And we've been teaching about how Jesus came and and what he did when he walked upon the earth and and what he taught and um, how he died for our sins and raised on on the third day. And and I've been teaching them what really happened. I mean, this is history. And uh, so I told this child, yes, it, it really happened. Everything that I've been telling you is true and it's history. It's not just some kind of fairy tale. And, and indeed, the stories of the Bible are, are not fairy tales. They're not mere fictional accounts. They are eyewitness testimonies to what really happened. Listen to what Peter said. Second Peter 1.16 We did not follow cleverly devised tales when we made known to you the power and coming of our Lord Jesus Christ but we were eyewitnesses of his majesty. In other words, Peter is saying that in communicating these things to you, they're not just tales which are really cleverly devised and and real strategic and real winsome. We're just telling you what we saw. We are eyewitnesses to the majesty of Jesus. As 1 John says, what we have handled, what we have tasted, what we have touched, what our eyes have seen, this we tell to you. It's what the the Bible is. And this morning, as we celebrate this Resurrection Sunday, we're going to look at two facts of history, well attested by many eyewitnesses. In fact, I would even well argue that more than 500 people saw each of these events take place. Um, Many of them, we know, have the names of them who saw both of these events. I'm talking about the death of Jesus Christ. I'm talking about his resurrection. These two events of history really changed the world. In fact, let me just say, we are gathered here together as a church today because of these two events. If Jesus Christ hadn't really died, and if Jesus Christ hadn't really rose from the dead, there is no reason for us to be together. There is zero reason for us to be here. Paul said it this way. If Christ has not been raised, our faith is worthless. The world ought to feel sorry for us. We ought to feel sorry for us. If Christ hadn't really died, hadn't really rose from the dead, we might as well turn off the lights and go home because the party is over. We might as well eat, drink, and be merry and live for ourselves because the Bible hinges on this whole fact, whether Jesus died whether he rose again. If Jesus didn't die, we're dead in our sins. If he didn't raise, then there is no hope. But the good news is we have hope. That's why many of you know and have been following um, Bob Clinton's emails because we support some children in Nepal. And um, he wrote recently about Sabita, 
as uh, a woman, a, a gal, 22 years old, who we've been following and hearing. I, I forget whether she had encephalitis or what her, she, she had a tumor in her brain is what she had. It maybe started a year ago, something like that. Okay, when we saw her, we, she, she didn't have it. And uh, she just deteriorated slowly over this past year or so. I can't remember. Um, but here's what Bob wrote. Many of you got this. He said, Jameson said, tomorrow as we celebrate the resurrection of our Savior and his victory over sin and death, we will be burying the body of our dear Sabita. She, quote, graduated to heaven at 3.23 this afternoon. She was 22 years old. Um... Bobby witnessed that when Sabita took her last breath, she suddenly looked up towards heaven. This young lady was special. She loved talking about her love for Jesus, and she was always thinking about the needs of others. Bobby had written a few months ago about when we had taken Sabita to the Bauda Children's Home. This is when she could still talk, and we will never forget how she told the little boys and girls about her desire to become a missionary and to tell others about Jesus. And she then said... I can't do that, so you have to. It's a powerful thing to say and had all of us in tears. So the funeral and burial for Sabita will be difficult, and I'm sure that all of us will shed more tears. However, at the same time, we will rejoice as we celebrate her life and remember what her Lord Jesus did so that we can have eternal life. Sabita's earthly body has died. Yet because she has put her trust in Jesus, she lives. Jameson. That's what Paul, that's what uh, Bob Clinton wrote. And, and we can have hope in Sabita. And she can have hope that there's, there's hope beyond the grave because Jesus Christ rose from the grave and conquered the death. And I just say these things really happened. That is the title of my message this morning. It really happened. And, and these matters are not of secondary importance Paul wrote to the first to Corinthians in 1 Corinthians 15, for I delivered to you as of first importance. This is primary importance. This is like like top of everything that Christ died for our sins, according to the scriptures, and that he was buried and then he was raised on the third day, according to the scriptures. This is the first importance that Christ died for our sins, according to the scriptures. It, it is his death upon the cross that, that satisfied the wrath of God that can enable us to forgive, uh, for God to forgive our sins. As we believe and trust in Jesus, God considers the punishment he did to him as um, sufficient punishment for us and for our sins. He died as our sacrifice. And the resurrection of Jesus from the dead gives us the promise of eternal life. Je- death could not keep Jesus in the grave and neither will it keep those who hope in Jesus in the grave either. For when that last trump sounds, the dead in Christ will rise first and uh, meet Christ in the air. Well, if you haven't done so already, I invite you to take your Bibles and open them to the Gospel of Mark. We're going to look at the end of Mark chapter 15 and then continue on to Mark chapter 16. In the Pew Bibles, if you have one, it's in the page 41 of the New Testament, kind of towards the, the front, or to the back of the book, rather. I want to read our text here this morning, and, and we've been going through the book of Luke for a year and a half, and of the book of Mark for a year and a half. We're just finishing, and we will finish it all next week, beginning in chapter 16, verse 9. But today, Mark chapter 15, verse 40. There were also some women looking on from a distance, among whom were Mary Magdalene, and Mary the mother of James the Less, and Joseph and Salome. And when he was in Galilee, they used to follow him and minister to him. And there were many other women who came up with him to Jerusalem. And when the evening had already come, because it was the preparation day, that is the day before the Sabbath, Joseph of Arimathea came, a prominent member of the council who himself was waiting for the kingdom of God. And he gathered up the courage and went in before Pilate and he asked for the body of Jesus. Pilate wondered if he was dead by this time, and summoning the centurion, he questioned him as to whether he was already dead. And ascertaining this from the centurion, he granted the body to Joseph. Joseph bought a linen cloth, took him down, wrapped him in the linen cloth, and laid him in a tomb, which had been hewn out of the rock. And he rolled a stone against the entrance of the tomb. Mary Magdalene and Mary, the mother of Joseph, were looking on to see where he was laid. 
And when the Sabbath was over, Mary Magdalene and Mary, the mother of James and Salome, brought spices so they might come and anoint him. Very early on the next, on the first day of the week, they came to the tomb where the sun had risen. And they were saying to one another, who will roll away the stone for us from the entrance of the tomb? And looking up, they saw that the stone had been rolled away, although it was extremely large. And entering the tomb, they saw a young man sitting at the right, wearing a white robe, and they were amazed. And he said to them, do not be amazed. You are looking for Jesus, the Nazarene, who has been crucified. He has risen. He is not here. Behold, <clears throat> here is the place where, he la- where they laid him. But go, tell his disciples and Peter, he is going ahead of you to Galilee, and there you will see him just as he told you. They went out and fled from the tomb, for trembling and astonishment had gripped them, and they said nothing to anyone, for they were afraid. Well, my first point this morning is this, is Jesus really died. One of the things that uh, makes the good news so good is when you see it in contrast with the bad news. And one of the things that makes the gospel so lovely is when we see how dark and black our sin is. And I would say that the more you understand your own sin and the more you understand how dark it is, the more glorious comes the gospel that Jesus Christ has forgiven all of our transgressions. And so on this resurrection day, we need to begin with the bad news. Some because that's where we are in the exposition of Mark. But it's good for us as well to look at how Jesus really died. Now, there are some who deny this. Theory is called the swoon theory. Jesus didn't really die. He just he swooned. He lost consciousness, went into a comatose state, but was still alive. He just appeared to be dead. Therefore, they say when Jesus raised from the dead, it wasn't from the state of death. It was from a state of comatose. It was a, a, a partial death. It just looked like death, but it wasn't there. And um, others try to deny the resurrection by saying, well, the disciples of Jesus went to the wrong tomb, which was empty, of course, because no one was even placed in that tomb. Therefore, the resurrection was just a vicious rumor because they went to the wrong tomb. Well, both of these questions are answered in our text as we see that Jesus really died. Mark 15, verse 40. Let's pick it up there. And, and by the way, this morning, I'm, I'm just going to read these verses and just try to explain them. Um, Shed light on them, uh, expose them, and just press them to your conscience. So there's, Mark is a short gospel. There's lots of detail that's not necessarily in Mark. I haven't tried this morning to pull all the accounts together and harmonize them. Uh, we're just going to read through what Mark says because it is sufficient for us. Well, we see some women named in verse 40. There were also some women looking on from a distance, among whom were Mary Magdalene and Mary the mother of James, the last, and Joseph. And Salome, three women identified by name, Mary Magdalene, Mary and Salome. These women were prominent figures of Jesus, prominent figures ministering to Jesus during his life. Mary Magdalene had been inflicted by seven demons and Jesus cast the demons out of her. It's only natural for her to follow Jesus closely. Mary was the mother of James and Joseph or Joseph. It's what Matthew says. Some disciples. Salome was the mother of the sons of Zebedee. It's only natural for both of these women to follow Jesus as their sons had followed Jesus as well. And verse 41 indicates even a broader perspective that there were many other women who were following. When he was in Galilee, they used to follow him and minister to him. And there were many other women who came up with him to Jerusalem. Jesus had, oftentimes all we hear about Jesus' disciples is men disciples, but There were also some women who were serving in their own way as well, really serving to Jesus, serving him and helping him. And and I just note here, um, it was the women who were faithful until the end. The men had scattered. The women were faithful. I I think, you know, there's something to that. In in China, um, there are many women pastors. Now, I, I don't think women pastors are right. I mean, Paul says in 1 Timothy 2, a woman not ought, ought not to teach or exercise authority over a man. I don't think that's right. But what's happened in, in China, because of the intense persecution, what, what, what happens is, is the women are, are less uh, vulnerable. Uh, the, the government won't go after women as much as they will go after men. Um, it's just the fact of life. So women are more in a safe place. And I trust that as Christianity becomes more and more of an issue there, the women pastors will, will go away. 
But I think it's the same with the disciples, with the, the women here, that they were able to stay around Jesus because they weren't going to attack and carry away the, the women uh, here. They could minister. They could stay faithful until the end. If any of the disciples were around the men, they would have been taken away. That's what we see. We're going to pick up on these women a little bit later because they're mentioned down in verse 47, which is crucial. But we'll just kind of put that there on the side. But we're going to move on to verse 42. This is the actual burial of Jesus. When evening had come, because it was preparation day, that is the day before the Sabbath. Jesus was crucified on Friday. Friday is the day before Saturday. Saturday is the Hebrew Shabbat. That is the, the rest day in which you could do no work. The Jewish Shabbat begins Friday at sundown. And if you remember, Jesus died in the ninth hour, according to verse 34 of Mark, uh, chapter 15. is at 3 o'clock. And they had to get him in the tomb by sundown, which presumably is somewhere around 6 o'clock. That's why, if you remember, they, they broke the legs of the two thieves on either side of Jesus so that they would die more quickly, so that they could bury them before sundown. But Jesus had already died. There's no reason to break his legs. But there was need to get his body into the tomb quickly. And that's when Joseph of Arimathea enters the stage in verse 43. Joseph of Arimathea came. We know little about this man. He's from Arimathea. We don't even know where that is. Probably 20 miles northwest of Jerusalem is our, our best guess. Um, according to Matthew's account, he was a rich man. We see here that he is a prominent member of the council. That is, he was a man of, of influence. He was a godly man as he himself was waiting for the kingdom of God. And so there's a picture of Joseph of Arimathea. Apparently he had enough political clout of influence enough to go into the governor to speak with Pilate about the, the body. And so he gathered up his courage because to take the body of Jesus was some way to identify with him, this man that was all despised by the, the Jews. But he was a, a follower of him. He gathered the courage, went in before Pilate and asked for the body of Jesus. And Pilate was surprised at this. Um, May have been surprised if Joseph of Arimathea coming, because apparently they probably knew each other a little bit. Like, oh, you're asking for the body of Jesus. But I think his big surprise was the fact that it's only three o'clock in the afternoon. I mean, it was only a few hours before that Pilate had sent Jesus to be crucified. And normally crucifixions take longer than this. That's the whole point of crucifixions, to, to draw out the death as long as you can. Because there's flogging and there's beating and there's a carrying of the cross and then there's the hanging. But apparently, probably the, the all-nighter that Jesus pulled, the, the agony of the prayer he prayed in Gethsemane, all taking his toll, zaptive strength, he was only able to last three hours upon the cross. Maybe it's the weight of God's wrath upon his shoulders, I'm not sure. But he went quickly and Pilate is like, too much time is he, verse 44, you can even see it there, Pilate wondered if he was dead by this time. Hey, can it be this quickly that Jesus died? And so Pilate wanted to make sure that he was dead. Pilate wanted to make sure that Jesus didn't swoon, make sure he just wasn't in a coma. And so he, he called and questioned, summoning the centurion. He questioned him as to whether he was already dead. And ascertaining from the centurion, he granted the body to Joseph. And this flies in direct contrast to those who believe the swoon theory that Jesus merely was in a coma because Joseph of Arimathea knew that he already died. Uh, this centurion knew that Jesus had died. This may well have been the very one who said in verse 39, 39, truly this man was the son of God. Notice he didn't say this man is the son of God. He said this man was the son of God because Jesus died. In fact, it was his very death that caused him to give that explanation because of the centurion, verse 39, saw the way he breathed his last, saw the way that he died. This man was the son of God. The centurion knew that he was dead. And the centurion, by the way, had seen many deaths. He knew the difference between a, a faint and a death. And he certainly could see that Jesus died. Furthermore, his disciples knew that he died. They, they saw his tomb of where it was. Um, if you look here, uh, verse 45 then finally says that uh, he gave and granted the body to Joseph. And then Joseph, here's what he did. He bought a linen cloth and Joseph 
took him down. So even there's more time, even ascertaining, is he really dead? Yes. And then Joseph is the one who probably came and took him down from the cross. So even after Jesus was dead, it's not like he instantly came off the cross. He was hanging on the cross for some time. Joseph, being a rich man, bought a linen cloth. That was not a problem for him. And uh, he wrapped Jesus in this linen cloth, according to verse 46, laid him in a tomb which had been hewn out in the rock. This was probably his tomb for himself. Uh, We read from another gospel account um, that it was a new tomb. No one had ever laid in this tomb before. And he rolled a stone against the entrance of the tomb. Let's talk about the, the, the tombs here. This is a rolling stone tomb. Um, graves and tombs have been found all over Israel. In fact, much of what we know about the culture of Israel is like we know about the culture of the Egyptians. What, what do they do in their burial practices? And in Israel, the graves all over the place. Um, but there have only been a few graves discovered that have this rolling stone in front of them. In fact, three or four is how few they are. Uh, just a, a handful of them. Um, and each of them... I don't I want to say coincidentally, it's not coincidentally, it is um, for sure they all date within 100 years of the death of Christ. So it's like that was the fad during those days, during that century, is to have a, a rolling stone tomb. Each of them have a round stone, four to six feet in height, a foot, foot and a half thick. They have a, a track which uh, pointed downhill that you can kind of push this stone and it would roll and shut the door. It was easier to shut it than to open it. You've got to kind of go uphill again and then notch a little, little wedge underneath it so that you can indeed get into the, the door there. And it took several people then to even open and shut, uh, to open uh, the tomb at any rate. These, by the way, were expensive to make. Far easier to find some kind of cave and put a door on top of that cave. And that explains why few of them have been found. Because it took some engineering in order to build uh, such a, a door like this. And Joseph of Arimathea had the means and he built one of these. And by the way, of those three or four that have been found, um, none of them are near Jerusalem. None of them quite fit this. So the, the tomb of Jesus with the rolling stone still hasn't been found yet. Um, I know there is a place in Jerusalem where they say, oh, this is the tomb. I don't, I don't really think it is. It does, doesn't quite match. But it's okay. It provides for a good... Uh, visitor experience. All right, we come back now to the women. Verse 47, Mary Magdalene and Mary, the mother of Joseph, were looking on to see where he was laid. These people were mentioned again in verse 40. They're going to be mentioned again in chapter 16, verse 1. And the important fact of these women isn't so much who they were, not the identification of them or the number, but the important point comes the role that they play in the narrative. In verse 40, we see them looking on from a distance. In verse 47, we see them looking to see where he was laid. In chapter 16, verse 1, we see these women coming with spices to anoint the body of Jesus. In other words, these women were within eyeshot of Jesus the entire time. No switching bodies. No mistaking the grave. They they saw Jesus taken down from the cross. They saw him carried to the tomb. They saw him placed in the tomb. They saw Joseph of Arimathea roll the stone over the tomb. They saw the the Roman soldiers being placed in front of that tomb. And they even returned to anoint the same body where they were the right tomb. There's no mistaking where Jesus was laid. Matthew even tells us that after Jesus was laid in the tomb, these women were sitting opposite the grave. Almost as if they were mourning. Just thinking and contemplating Jesus dead, looking at the tomb, meditating, praying to God, doing whatever, whatever they're doing, pondering all that would happened. And now think about it. This kind of tomb was a rare tomb. It, it would have been easy to spot this tomb in the place in uh, Jerusalem where he was buried. Because there were only a few of them. Maybe this was the only one in the, in the graveyard. They didn't go to the wrong tomb. They saw that he was buried. Jesus really died. Now, I labor this point because without his death, his resurrection means nothing. If Jesus didn't really die, he didn't come back from the dead. He may have been raised from something, but if he didn't come back from the dead, then we don't have any hope because we will die someday. Or we will go with, be with the Lord if Jesus comes back before them. But our hope is that that God raised Jesus from the dead because that's where we will be and our, our hope is that He will raise us too from the dead. And the good news is that's promised to those who believe and trust in Christ. 
All right, well, here's the good news. Okay, we're going to turn the message here. Jesus really died. Second point, he really lived. He really rose. Okay, he really rose from the dead. And we're going to see that here. Let's begin in verse 1. When the Sabbath was over, all right, that would be Saturday is the Sabbath, and the next day starts at sundown. So um, anyway, the, the, the day begins when the sun starts to rise, if you will. These are the same women that watched Jesus die, same women where he was buried. They now come to anoint his body, bringing spices. Now, in the days of Jesus, uh, bodies weren't just buried away in a nice coffin like they are today. Rather, they're wrapped in linen cloths, placed away in a cave for about a year or so. After a year, the body has been decayed. All that's left is the bones. And a second visit to the tomb is necessary. And the bones are placed in what's called an ossuary called the bone box. This bone box is about two feet long, a foot wide, and a foot and a half tall. It was a long enough for the longest bone in our body. Which kids? What's the longest bone in your body? Your femur. Exactly right. And it's thick enough for the thickest bone in your body. What's the thickest bone in your body? Your skull, right? And it's tall enough to fit all the bones of your body, which puts it about a foot and a half tall. And there are many ossuaries all over Israel. You see them. But this is where you get the bones. You put it. And then that, that's your loved one. And then that you can bury away and tuck in some place. So this, this cave was kind of a rotating place just filled with rotting bodies until you could get the, the bones out of there. So when the bodies were buried, they were covered with spices because when bodies rot, they smell really bad. And so these spices were placed on the bodies so as to prevent the smell. If someone else had to come in the cave and, and pull up an old... You know, someone else whose bones were there make make way for somebody else to come. They wanted at least to have it tolerable in there. And so they place spices on there. And we're talking in order to combat the smell. We're talking we're talking maybe 100 pounds, maybe 150 pounds of spices and just just sweet smelling stuff that they would place upon a body. So these women, each one carrying maybe 30, 40, 50 pounds of spices, came to the tomb. They came to anoint the body of Jesus. And boy, were they in some, for a surprise when they left the, earlier, they had returned home because it was the Passover and they celebrated their Seder meal and the, the sun went down. They spent the Passover at home, not daring to walk too far up to the, um, to the cemetery because that would be too far to walk on the Sabbath. Uh, they didn't dare anoint the body because that would be work on the Sabbath. So they came to anoint the body of Jesus at the moment the Sabbath was over. They came at their first opportunity. That's what verse 16. Verse 2 says, very early on the first day of the week, at the crack of dawn, their very first opportunity to anoint the body of Jesus, they came. They came looking for Jesus. It was, it was really an act of devotion, a, a last act that they could do. They, they weren't simply coming to look at the grave to mourn as an observer. They were looking for the body of Jesus to anoint him. They had work to do. That's what they were planning to do. And these women, when they came on the scene, didn't find what they expected to see. They expected to see the grave just as it was when they had seen it before. The, the stone rolled over it. Roman guards placed there to make it secure according to the religious leaders' instructions to do so. In fact, that was their discussion along the way. Is like verse 3. They were saying to one another, who will roll away the stone for us from the entrance of the tomb? I mean, it's a big stone, it's a heavy stone, you've got to roll it uphill. And these women, if their sons are disciples, right, their sons are in the order of 16 to 20 years old. Or, I mean, we're, we're talking older women, maybe 50-year-old women, maybe 60-year-old women. And three of them, I think, would need a little help opening up this, um, uh, this door, this rolling stone. And maybe they're hoping for the gardener of the seminary to be around to help them move the stone. They, they didn't know, but they needed some help. They were thinking, but their surprise comes in verse 4 when looking up, they saw the stone had been rolled away, although it was extremely large. The stone was no longer covering the entrance of the tomb, rather, it was rolled away from the entrance, and they could see the tomb easily. That wasn't the only surprise, because it says in verse 5. Entering the tomb, they saw a young man sitting at the right, wearing a white robe, and they were amazed. At this point, confusion is is coming across their minds. They'd come with a task to anoint the body of Jesus, but there was no body. 
And in fact, not only no body, is that there was just a young man sitting there and he was clothed in white. Now, from other gospel accounts, we can put together that this young man was probably certainly an angel. Angels often appear as young men. Um, they often appear as young, attractive men. Thus explained Sodom and Gomorrah in Genesis 15. They were desirable. And so here's a, a young man, angel, wearing a, a white robe. And uh, that's shocking too. You don't, you don't have an opportunity to see an angel just every day. And uh, it's understandable then. It says why they were amazed, why they were bewildered. It's not quite what they were expecting. Have you ever been in a situation where you're expecting one thing and then you get another it, it, it doesn't take you just a little bit like, well, what's happening here? You, you're kind of confused. It's not, it's not quite right. It, something's amiss. Um, maybe you try to look for your parked car. I remember one time being in Los Angeles and um, parking my car for an early morning Bible study. And then I went to this Bible study. I went back and the car wasn't there. And I was expecting my car to be there. And it wasn't there. And it, it put me in this, this... Maybe I parked some other place. And it took me in a daze. Until I walked around, I read the sign that said no parking 7 a.m. to 9 a.m. And it was like about 8 o'clock in the morning by the time I was done with Bible study. went, oh, oops. And a similar, similar case here is that the, these women were, were confused and confounded. And, and as it says here, they were amazed. Other translations even at this point just say, not translations, other accounts say they were fearful. I mean, there's just this amazement, fearful, like what's happening? And... And where is this? And, and the angel tries to comfort them. This young man does. And he says to them, do not be amazed. Well, far either, easier said than done. You don't encounter angels very often. Um, everything didn't quite seem right. From the stone to the Roman guards that weren't to be found or, or around, they weren't guarding the thing anymore, the, the tomb anymore. The body was gone. The young man sitting there. They had every reason to be amazed. He said, don't be amazed. Uh, and he knows everything that they're doing. He says, you're looking for Jesus, the Nazarene, who's been crucified. He said, I know why you're here. You're here looking for Jesus. And it's not so much that the angel was omniscient so much as he knew, that, okay, this is the tomb of Jesus. Jesus has been raised from the dead. Here comes these ladies with uh, some ointment and some spices. And you could smell them probably before they arrived. You could certainly see what they had. Maybe they plopped them down outside as the fragrance filled the air. He knew what they were doing. They were going to anoint this body. And they knew about Jesus. He, he knew that Jesus was from Nazareth. And they knew what happened to him. How he was crucified. And he knew that Jesus was no longer there. And he continued with some other things. Some were facts that the women didn't know. Some were facts that the women should have remembered but didn't. It is. He is risen. He is not here. Behold, here is the place where they laid him. And this is the good news of Easter, right? Let me read that again and we just say hallelujah, right? He has risen. He is not here. Behold the place where they laid him. Hallelujah. And uh, to us it's hallelujah because we understand the whole story. We understand the perspective. But for these women here, they, they, didn't, they didn't understand that Jesus was not in the tomb because the grave could not hold him as we sung today. Um, they didn't understand that. And, and, and this really happened, okay? If we'd have been there, we'd have seen an empty shelf there where Jesus was as well. John records that when Peter heard about this, he came running into the tomb, as uh, Phil read for us this morning, and he beheld the linen wrappings lying there and the face cloth, which had been on his head, not lying with the linen wrappings, but rolled up in a place by itself. So in other words, the, the wrappings that were around Jesus' body were, were sitting there and they were even folded up. Jesus made his bed before he left the tomb is really what took place. And, and the fact that the, the cloth around his body was there, so that he, the, nobody took the body. Okay, It's not like a, a grand coup from these disciples because they wouldn't have taken the body out of the, the linen wrappings left. They would have taken the linen wrappings entirely with them. But it shows that Jesus really resurrected from the dead. And this is the good news. They didn't quite understand, but he gave them the instructions. Verse 7, go tell his disciples and Peter, he is going ahead of you to Galilee. And there you will see him just as he told you. These words probably haunted them. Just as he told you. Told the disciples probably, maybe to the women it was news, but probably news got out a little bit that Galilee was where they were going to go. The angel told the women that 
He had indeed risen. Tell the disciples to go to Galilee because that's where they're supposed to go. Like, in other words, he's sending them a message that just do what Jesus told you to do. Turn back to Mark chapter 14, verse 27. Look what took place there. This is when the, they just finished their Seder meal. Verse 26, after singing him, they went out from the Mount of Olives. They just finished their meal. They just sang the Hillel, probably finishing in Psalm 118. The stone which the builders rejected has become the chief cornerstone. And then here's what Jesus says to them as they're going out. He said, you will all fall away because it is written, I will strike down the shepherd and the sheep shall be scattered. But after I have been raised, I will go ahead of you to Galilee. And so think about this. They'll strike the shepherd. The sheep will be scattered. But then the, the shepherd is going to be raised and then go meet him in Galilee. And, and these things happen just exactly like clockwork. It's not that Jesus was off the scene. It's not like he just disappeared. It's not like he vanished. He just relocated. He was alive and well. He was crucified outside the gates of Jerusalem in the tomb, but now he's up and raised. He's going to meet him in Galilee, a couple-day journey up north where they spent most of their time together. And next week, we're going to see what took place in Galilee as we look at verses 9 and 9 through 20. But here notice that Jesus predicted his resurrection even before it happened. After, verse 28 says, after I've been raised, I will go ahead of you to Galilee. This is, by the way, the fifth time that Jesus predicted his death and his resurrection. Fifth, fifth time. He said, I'm going to be raised from the dead. But Peter didn't believe it and he protested, right? He said, verse 29, even though all may fall away, I will not. And in verse 31, even though I have to die with you, I will not deny you. He, he's, not, he's not even thinking about the resurrection. It's if all he can remember is this, that the shepherd, strike the shepherd and the sheep will be scattered they didn't hear, he didn't hear verse 28 or something. Didn't under, didn't understand it. And all the disciples were saying the same thing as well. Well, let, let's look back at all the other times which Jesus told them he's going to raise from the dead. Mark 8, verse 31. This is right after it was revealed to Peter that Jesus was the Christ. We read, and he began to teach them that the Son of Man must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders and the chief priests and the scribes and be killed and after three days rise again. Right there, the prediction, first prediction of the resurrection. And how did Peter respond? Well, Peter rebuked Jesus. Verse 32, Peter took him aside and began to rebuke him, saying, no, this can't happen. He didn't want him to die, but he didn't understand the whole death, burial, resurrection thing. Well, after the Mount of Transfiguration, we see the same thing. Confusion. Verse 9, chapter 9. As they were coming down from the mountain, he gave them orders not to relate to anyone what they had seen until the Son of Man rose from the dead. And they, verse 10, seized upon that statement, discussing one another what rising from the dead meant. But they didn't understand it. They, they got it, but they didn't get it. They saw, but they didn't see. Same thing at the end of chapter 9, Mark 9, verse 31. He was teaching his disciples, the Son of Man is to be delivered into the hands of men, and they will kill him. And when he's been killed, he will rise three days later. There it is, the resurrection again. He's going he's gonna to raise up. You think they understood? They did not. Verse 32 said they did not understand the statement. They're afraid to ask him. He's talked about this a third time. He's talking about his resurrection. They still understand, but they didn't really want to talk to him. Mark chapter 10. 33 and 34, behold, we are going up to Jerusalem. The Son of Man will be delivered to the chief priests and to the scribes. They will condemn him to death and will hand him over to the Gentiles. They will mock him and spit on him and scourge him and kill him. And three days later, they will rise, he will rise again. There it is. Exactly. And, and these things happen like exactly. Handed over. He was mocked. He was spit upon. He was scourged. He was killed. All took place in Jerusalem. It's like... If, if the first five things happen, don't you think that the sixth is going to happen? But I don't even really think that they heard that because they're all interested in their self. Jesus said, I'm about to suffer immensely and die. And they said, oh, Jesus, can we sit at glory in your kingdom? It's like it, it just it just didn't compute. It just didn't match. They didn't know what they were talking about. Well, back in, in Mark 16, we see this angel reminding the disciples through these women, that everything was going according to plan. The crucifixion was not some roadblock. Jesus was not 
crucified according to some political plan, run amok. No, everything was going just as I told you. Should have pierced the hearts of the disciples when they heard that. In verse 8, we see the response of these women. And they went out and fled from the tomb. For trembling and astonishment, trembling is fear, right? They're just, just scared. They were amazed. It had gripped them. And they said nothing to anyone, for they were afraid. Now, this doesn't mean that they were silent about the things they saw. I think what it means is that on their way back, they were just so deep in thought about thinking about everything. They, didn't, they, they, they couldn't even communicate with anybody. They, they were just kind of like, whoa, what have we seen? And they're, they're just kind of talking about it. And, and people may have passed them by the way and they, they, they said, hello, how are you doing, Mary? And they just would, totally would ignore them and just kind of write on. Because from other gospel accounts, when Mary Magdalene got to the disciples, we read that she went and reported to those who had been with him. It was in Matthew's gospel and the idea here is they're just so deep in thought. But when they got there, they shared everything. They, they shared their experiences about what they saw, how the tomb was empty. And remember in John's gospel account that Phil read for us, um, that uh, they went and they, they tried to investigate it. And, and I think that verse 13 is kind of the appropriate verse here, right? They went away and reported to others, but they did not believe them either, right? They, they didn't believe it, right? Verse 11, when they heard that he was alive and had been seen by her, they refused to believe it. So we even see the disciples. First time they hear about the resurrection, they're not believing it. And even Peter, when Peter and, and John went, you remember, and John was faster and, and he got there first, but Peter was the first one in who saw it. It says in John chapter 20 that... Um, the other disciple who had come first to the tomb, then also entered, he saw and believed and said, for as yet they did not understand the scriptures that he must rise from the dead. Right. Maybe believe that he was gone, believe that the tomb was empty, but didn't fully grasp that Jesus is risen from the dead. And I just say this. It is hard to believe that Jesus rose from the dead. Um, dead people just don't rise from the dead very often. Um, Lazarus, John chapter 11, a few children raised from the dead. Um, some tombs broke out at the time of death of Christ. But you know, I, don't, I don't know of any coroner who's ever seen a body in the morgue rise from the dead. I mean, this is just not a common experience. I think the more you think about it, in some ways it becomes harder to believe. Because you might say, well, this fairy tale, yeah, Jesus was dead. But if you, if you think about it, he's got it, you know, it, his body is cold and stiff, rigor mortis is setting in. How, how, does that, how does God start that all up again? Bodily fluids, expunged from his body. How, how, how does that all start again? How, how does that work? Well, it is the miraculous hand of God. If God can create the universe into existence with his word, he certainly can raise a body from the dead. It's hard to believe, but when God illuminates, you will believe. And I just say to you this morning, you must believe these things. I thought about putting my third point as a question. Do you believe? But I want this morning to really press it. You must believe. I mean, one of the greatest proofs of the resurrection is, is what happened to the disciples when they saw this. You read the gospel accounts and they were slow to believe the resurrection. Right? Even here, verse 11, verse 13. They went away. They didn't believe. They didn't believe. Even Thomas, remember, well, I won't believe until I see him face to face. There's a very slowness of them to believe. And before Jesus appeared to them, they were afraid and unbelieving. John records how they were huddled in a room behind locked doors for fear of the Jews. They were afraid that what happened to Jesus would happen to us as well. He was executed. If they find the worst followers, we might summarily be executed as well. But when they saw Jesus alive and well... Things turned completely around. Instead of being fearful and unbelieving, they all of a sudden became bold and believing. All the disciples embraced this historical reality that Jesus really lived and died and rose again. And the death and resurrection of Jesus became their theme. We don't have time today, but we can look through the, the book of Acts and we can see, okay, what is it the apostles preached? And their outlines are almost always the same. Jesus lived and he died 
and he rose again. Therefore, you need to repent and believe. That was that was like almost all their messages. Four part sermon. He lived and he died and he rose again. You need to repent and believe. That's what they're always spoke of. And they spoke these things at great cost to themselves. Peter and John were in prison for preaching these things. They were flogged for preaching these things. But Peter and John said, listen, we cannot stop speaking about what we have seen and heard. In other words, right? we've seen this, we've witnessed it. It really happened. He really died. He really rose from the dead. We saw it, we experienced it. How can you keep us quiet? You can't. You're just going to blurt it out. You're going to speak. You couldn't stop us, even with threats. Even with threats of flogging. And they went ahead and did it. They said, whether it's right in the sight of God or man, what? We must obey God rather than man, Acts 5.29. We, we just need to speak about the life, death, burial, resurrection of Jesus. That's why Paul said this is of first importance. That Christ died for our sins according to the Scriptures. That He was buried. That He was raised on the third day according to the Scriptures. And then it goes on to say he appeared to us. He appeared to all the disciples. Then he appeared to more than 500 people at one time. And the idea in Corinthians, you can go and you can find those people who saw him. And they have the advantage of history. They, they could have said, oh, did you see him? Yeah, and they could have had all these, all these different accounts. But we can believe that this account is true because of how it changed the disciples. Not only did it mean a little bit of flogging, but it meant death to all of them. Herod Put James to death with the sword, A.D. 44. You can read it in Acts 12, verse 2. Ten years later, Philip in Phrygia was scourged, thrown into prison, afterwards crucified, 54 A.D. Matthew was martyred with a battle axe in Ethiopia, A.D. 60. James, the son of Alphaeus, was beaten and stoned by the Jews. James, uh, Andrew, went to Asia to preach. He was crucified on a cross that's shaped like an X. Peter was crucified upside down because he thought himself to be unworthy, be crucified in the same form and manner that the Lord, his Lord was. Thaddeus crucified in Edessa in 72 A.D. Bartholomew was cruelly beaten and crucified by idolaters in India. Thomas was thrust through with a spear in India. Simon the Zealot was crucified in Britain in A.D. 74. The only two that didn't die, according to church tradition, were John and Judas, a die a martyr's death. Judas, of course, hung himself after he betrayed Jesus. And John was exiled on the island of Patmos as a political prisoner. Now, why do I say these things? I, I, I'm not to say that all believers will be martyred for their faith. But I say these things to convince you the, re, the reality of the resurrection in the hearts and minds of the disciples. They, they knew that he really died. They knew that he really rose. And the only thing that can explain their change of behavior from hiding for fear of their lives to dying for their faith is this resurrection. Because listen, you don't put your life on the line for fairy tales. You, you, don't, you don't die for Aesop's fables. Okay, You don't die for Humpty Dumpty. You die for someone you know who was dead and who raised again. Whom you're following with your whole life. You put your life on the line only for those things you're convinced of. One man said it this way. The same thing I've been saying. After the crucifixion, Jesus' apostles hid behind locked doors, terrified that they would be executed next. But something changed them from cowards to bold preachers. Anyone who understands human characters knows that people do not change that much without some major influence. That influence was seeing their master, bodily risen from the dead. Christ appeared to them in the locked room and on the shore of the Sea of Galilee and on the Mount of Olives. And after seeing Jesus alive, Peter and the others left the locked room and preached the risen Christ, unafraid of what would happen to them. They quit hiding because they knew the truth. They finally understood that Jesus is God incarnate who saves people from sin. Listen, it really happened. And I'm saying you must believe. I say this because... Your eternity really hangs in the balance. I want to go to one last passage. Romans chapter 10, verses 9 and 10. If you're in your pre Bible, it's 125. It's page number there. I want to speak this verse positively, and then I want to quote it negatively and show you how your, your life hangs in the balance. Romans 10, verse 9, if you confess with your mouth, Jesus is Lord, 
That means confess Jesus as King of Kings and Lord of Lords. The one to whom you are giving all of your allegiance. It's not just saying, it's, it's really confessing it and acting upon Jesus being your Lord. And believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead. Believe that the things I've been preaching to you is true this morning. Believe that he was really dead and that he really rose. If those two things are true of you, you've confessed it with your mouth and believed it in your heart, you will be saved. That is, you will be saved from your sins. You'll be saved from yourself. You will enjoy God forever in eternity. He will rescue you. That's what saved means. You will be rescued from your sin. You'll be transferred from the kingdom of darkness into the kingdom of His beloved Son. All of your sin will be washed away. Your sin was suffered upon the cross and you then get His righteousness. So God treats you as He would treat Jesus who never sinned. Because He treated Jesus as if He was you. Now let's flip it and say the other way. If you do not confess with your mouth Jesus is Lord... Or believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead. You will not be saved. And rather than facing an eternity of, of joy and pleasures forevermore, you'll be in the place where Jesus said there's weeping and gnashing of teeth. You will not be saved. You will not be rescued from your sins. You will die in your sins. That's why Paul said in 1 Corinthians 15, If Christ Jesus has not been raised, we are still dead in our sins. Or if Jesus raised from the grave and we don't believe it, we are still dead in our sins and we won't be saved. And so I'm just telling you, you need to believe. You must believe. And I would beg you this morning to believe that Jesus died and that Jesus rose from the dead. Let's pray. Father, I pray that your spirit would blow, that you would grant illuminating faith this point in this time. Help us who believe to grow in our, our faith in a deeper way. Help those among us who don't believe to, to see that we speak rational things here. That this isn't fanciful, emotional hype. I think of this morning how I have, I've preached very rationally. God to the mind. God less to the heart. Father, we would pray that you might do your work and convert saved people today. People perhaps who are in their sins. Whether it's kids, young, whether it's middle-aged people, whether it's old. God, whoever doesn't believe here, I pray that your regenerating spirit right now would illumine people's hearts and minds. That they would repent of their sins, confess Christ as their Lord, and believe that God indeed, you raised your son, Jesus Christ, from the dead. You seated him at the right hand of yourself. And someday he'll come back to rule and reign the world. And may we be his loyal subjects who look forward to that reign and long for that reign to come. I thank you, O Lord, for this Sunday as we're forced to think on the resurrection. May it stir our hearts afresh for the rest of the day. God, indeed, for weeks and months to come. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.